is Bloomberg Surveillance. I am modestly bullish near term, but I'm bearish into medium term. I expect the S&P to decline to a low double-digit percentage this year. I think if we're going to take long dollar positions, uh, I think the euro is the way to go right now. Short the euro, long the dollar. I don't think inflation's too low. The public doesn't care that core PCE inflation is 1.4%. They're oblivious to it. Bloomberg Surveillance, your link to the world of economics, finance, and investment on Bloomberg Radio. Good morning. I'm Michael McKee. It's 7 a.m. on Wall Street, 8 p.m. in Shanghai, where G20 finance ministers and central bankers are meeting to save a world financial system that today at least doesn't look a whole lot like it needs saving. That said, there are a lot of problems out there for them to talk about and talk about them. We will on the show today. Bob Hormat's with us in just a moment. Uh, first, though, the markets giving no sign of imminent collapse. Even China's Shanghai Composite up a percentage point today. Every major index higher around the world. In Europe right now, the stock 600 up by four points, 1.1 percent. DAX is up 147 points, 1.6 percent. And here in the U.S., futures are significantly higher. S&P E-minis up 10 points right now, half a percent, half percent gain for Dow E-minis. They're up 82. NASDAQ 100 E-minis up 28 points, seven-tenths of a percent. Bonds, little changed here or in Europe, although we have seen a bit of a gain for bonds in the last hour or so. Ten-year note yield, 1.73 percent, 1.18 for the five-year. Two-year is at 74 basis points. Deterioration in Europe, negative 55 basis points for the German two-year. If the G20 makes any news at all, it will affect currencies first, which may be why there's almost uh, no movement there. Everybody holding their breath, I guess, on currency trading desks. The yen, 112.81. The euro, 110.26. Uh, the pound, of course, uh, which has the overlay of Brexit, unchanged, 139.65 right now. Can I mention Richard Partington? Our, you may. Our funeral and obituary reporter in London. Uh, He's had to cover. Is he writing about us? I hope not. (laughs) Lloyd's and RBS. Lloyd's and Uh, RBS this week. Yes. Are just ugly. Well, RBS pushing out its dividend. The stock down now uh, in London by uh, 7.9%. So they are having a bad day. Um, The good news, though, in general across the screen, uh, and this week shouldn't obscure the fact that you look at RBS and Standard Chartered, all those banks. from Shanghai to Syria, there are issues. Bob Hormetz, vice chairman of Kissinger Associates, prior to that, he served in a variety of government roles, most recently as undersecretary of state on the economic side. He also spent time as vice chairman of Goldman Sachs International. Bob, uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, from what, from your perch, if you were in the room, what's the biggest threat to the global financial system that the ministers are talking about? I think they're concerned about two things. One, there's a large amount of debt out there, and there's very little room in most countries, with the exception of China, for more fiscal stimulus. Monetary policy has been running on all cylinders. There's probably a little bit more room to stimulate through expansion of money growth. Uh, But they're worried in particular now with both of those much more limited in their scope and opportunity that there'll be a lot of currency volatility and competitive currency devaluation. And I think that's what they're going to focus on, to try to avoid a rush to the bottom with countries devaluing their currencies, because in many cases, some will assume that's the default position. If you want to stimulate, you've got to lower your currency. I think that that is going to be one of the major concerns, to get greater stability in the currency market and avoid massive competitive devaluations. Mark Carney 
the head of the Bank of England started off the meeting today by saying that's a dumb idea to, you know, competitive devaluations, negative interest. Don't do it. He's right. We all lose. It's a race to the bottom. You've been in these rooms. Does anybody listen, or do they go back home and say, yeah, 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 but we got to do what's important for us? Well, I think Mark's absolutely right. We work together at Goldman Sachs. He's extremely good and very visionary about the risks to the system. He really understand, understands it quite well, and he's right to issue that warning. And, in fact, uh, the Chinese central bank governor, Joe Shaochuan, has also made the point that China is not going to engage in competitive currency devaluation. I think that's one reason that currencies are so stable today. And that will be a, a, an important signal to the market what the Chinese do. It's certainly not the only country that has allowed its currency to go down. And, in fact, the markets are pushing it down. It's not the Chinese government. The Chinese government actually has been intervening to prevent it from going down further. But many governments now see that as their growth option, allow the currency to decline. And even if they don't want that as their primary option, when they see other currencies declining, they want theirs to decline as well so they don't lose competitive uh, strength. So it's a very complicated process, and you need a period of stability in currency markets. That would help a lot to increase stability or at least retain a certain measure of stability in financial markets. Uh, Bob Horvitz with Kissinger Associates. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance. Brought to you by Invesco. Invesco believes it's time to bench the benchmarks. Consider active management and factor-based strategies. Find out more at Invesco.com slash high convictions. Bob Hormat's with us with a, a, a lot of different uh, perspective here. And I think, Bob, the, the major question uh, that, that people have is what we do with our foreign policy. Forgetting about the debates that we've had recently, what's the the projection? You learned a lot. Serving with Secretary Clinton, pivot was the word for a moment. There's different other ideas, including Henry Kissinger's New World Order that's out there. What is the Hormat's foreign policy prescription? Well, I think there are two things that are critically important, really three, but let me just focus on two. One is that we're seeing in Europe a rise of nationalistic uh, populist parties of the right and the left. And that divide in Europe has been accentuated by the refugee crisis. And what's happening is that individual countries are being divided by populist politics. Uh, It's weakening Europe. It's weakening European support for NATO. And Putin is playing on this by cozying up to all these uh, extremist or highly populist mm-hmm. parties. So the fragmentation or the risk of a fragmentation of Europe reduces Europe's own economic potential, but it also reduces Europe's role as a strong American ally. In the um, Well, this goes back to your book, The Price of Liberty. Yes. And you could take your book. You didn't write it about Europe. No. But if you wrote your book, The Price of Liberty, right now about Europe, what would you say? I would say that the risk is that after World War II, the U.S. wanted a strong economic Europe because that would strengthen growth Mm -hmm. for the United States, bigger trading partner, but also because it would strengthen Europe's cohesion. This is the Jean Monnet vision and also strengthen Europe's ability to resist Soviet pressures. Now we're seeing a weaker Europe and we're seeing Putin take advantage of this by developing these confrontational areas like 
eastern Ukraine, but also trying to develop closer, cozier ties with Poland and Hungary and many other countries. So Europe is a risky situation from a geopolitical and from an economic perspective. The other is Asia, and the United States does need a strong TPP because it has to demonstrate that we want to play a continuing role in Asia, and a few Marines in Darwin, Australia, is not really the name of the game. The name of the game is a stronger economic presence. Good for American exports because that's the still single biggest area of growth, even though we don't pay as much attention to it now, but everything else going on, but it's still the single biggest area of growth. And we also need to demonstrate that we're going to be in Asia as a major player for a long period of time for political and for security reasons. So you need closer ties with our European allies and you need a stronger set of trade relations with, with Asia, uh, particularly East Asia. And that's going to be something that should be uh, an important element of our foreign policy. Back, back uh, in the 90s, when you and I first got to know each other running around Asia uh, with the Asian financial right. crisis, Bob Rubin would walk into a room as the U.S. Treasury Secretary and say, basically, this is what's going to happen. We're the, we are the superpower, and this is what you guys need to do. Who runs the world like that now, or are we in Ian Bremmer's G0 world? We're not really in a G0 world, but we're in a multipolar world where a lot of countries have influence over the course of the global economy and what's going to happen. China, obviously, is playing a much greater role than it did in the latter part of the 1990s. The U.S. is still the preeminent influence in the G20 and other groups of When he of goes in nature. the room, do people listen to Jack Lew? I think they listen to him, but they also listen to Lo Jiwei and Zhou Shaochuan of China, and they listen to uh, leaders of other countries. India is playing a greater role. Uh, the ECB, whereas, as I mentioned, Europe's having big problems, the ECB still is very important. And then you get individuals like Mark Carney, who speak with a voice of credibility. So we're really in a multipolar world. The U.S. influence is considerably less than it was. And as you see from this Russian bond that they're issuing, the U.S. has said Americans should not right. underwrite it. And now you see the Europeans, according to the Russians, are bidding to play in that game. So play in the game as well. Bob Hormat's with us. We'll continue our discussion. Of course, associated so much with his uh, Fletcher School at Tufts uh, University. He is with Kissinger. Associates with an important Iran brief out. We'll talk to Bob Hormatz about uh, how we should treat Iran, some of the background that he brings to his important Atlantic Council report. Futures up nine, Dow futures up 70, the yield 1.73%. This hour of surveillance is brought to you by Westchester Subaru. Visit westchestersubaru.com. Here's Bob uh, John Tucker, rather, with the latest news headlines. Well, Michael, a verbal free-for-all at last night's GOP debate on CNN. You tell me about this guy. This is what we're going to have Here's the guy that inherited $200 million. If he hadn't inherited $200 million, you know where Donald Trump would be right now? Selling watches in Manhattan. Marco Rubio going after Donald Trump. Ted Cruz joining in, questioning the frontrunner's conservative credentials. A Heston, Kansas police officer being hailed as a hero for stopping a series of shootings. The officer gunning down a man who has stormed the factory where he worked. The gunman killed three people and wounded 14 others. And U.S. officials say the Pentagon has launched a newly aggressive campaign of cyber attacks against Islamic State. And Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. 
Sounds like you and uh, Mike sometimes. I, I was going to ask you if the debate's more painful on radio or TV. I'll let John Tucker uh, <laughs> decide. Uh, oil lifts 33-43 on West Texas Intermediate. We are with Robert Armatz. It's Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance brought to you by your Tri-State BMW centers. Visit them online at tristatebmw.com. At BMW, they make only one thing, the ultimate driving machine. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app, and on your radio. This is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. This update's brought to you by Sector Spider ETFs. Why buy a single stock when you can invest in the entire sector? Visit SectorSBDRS.com or call 1-866-SECTOR-ETF. There is a headline crossing the Bloomberg. Alibaba is said to be in talks with banks for up to a $4 billion loan, and that's according to the Wall Street Journal. Stocks are rallying around the world this morning, oil gaining with industrial metals. As China's central bank said, it sees room for monetary easing in the buildup to Group of 25 finance chief's discussions on the global economy. S&P E-mini futures up nine points. Dow E-mini futures up 76. And Nasdaq E-mini futures up 25. DAX in Germany is up 1.3 percent. Ten-year Treasury down 3.30 seconds. The yield 1.72 percent. NYMEX crude oil up one and a quarter percent or 41 cents to 33.48 a barrel. COMEX gold is little change down 80 cents to 12.38.10 an ounce. The euro, $1.1029. The yen, $112.79. And that's the Bloomberg Business Flash. Tom and Mike. Karen, thanks so much. I'm glad you mentioned that Alibaba headline. I, it came across, folks. You see stuff come across the Bloomberg, and you go, oh, Mike, in dollar terms, they have something in the vicinity of $8.2 billion in debt. So a $4 billion overlay is a tangible amount of money. That's where I was going here. I think that's something uh, worth looking into next week. Alibaba looking for $4 billion. I'll read the story. This is yeah. the, uh, from the Wall Street Journal. and uh, it, yeah. uh, Alibaba not being in America. If it were an American company, you would say they probably have profits trapped overseas, so they want to borrow against those. I yeah. don't know what the story is. Oh, about. I'm not saying it's nefarious. I'm just saying that number no, just, really I, caught I, my attention. Why they're doing it, I don't. Understand. But uh, I'll, I'll read it. Should we rip up the script? Robert Hormat's with us with his decades Talk of baseball. experience on China. <laughs> uh, Jack Ma was at the Economic Club of New York yes. not that long ago, and it was it was it was almost messianic or, or, or well, whatever. Tell me about your perception as an expert on international relations of the capitalism of Mr. Ma. Well, I think he is a, a very innovative guy, and he's trying to strengthen the the capitalistic environment in China, for sure. And he is one of the very biggest, probably the biggest private company in China today, and one of the most international. But he's really working very hard to make that a global company. That was what he was saying at the Economic Club, that over a period of time, more and more people, particularly younger people, are going to use e-commerce in the way he has set it out in his mind. And that's something you've been so good at, is on generational shifts, whether it's Japan or Russia. What is the generational shift you perceive within China? That is really the key point he made. I'm glad you raised that. I think what he was saying was two things. One, 
Chinese don't have big malls like we do. So when younger generations emerge in China and want to do business, they're not going to go to a mall and congregate because they don't have them in China to anything yeah. to the degree we do. So they're going to use an international cyber mall, which is an e-mall, which is the kind of thing he is he's developing. So And he's also saying in the United States, increasingly, younger Americans are going to see the Internet as the prime vehicle for shopping, and businesses are going to see it in, in the same way. So he's very, really talking about an intergenerational change, not only in China, and but elsewhere, and that would play to the strengths of right. Alibaba, but also other okay. uh, companies like uh, Amazon and um, eBay. Mike, I never thought we'd do security analysis on Alibaba with Bob Hormans. Yeah, It's a great and beautiful thing. things you learn. Uh, but, but I want to follow on China because... Uh, you were noting the comments from uh, the Chinese as the G20 meeting gets underway seem to be very different from uh, in the past. Uh, they, they normally don't talk about monetary policy as forthrightly. I think it's very interesting how the Chinese have worked very hard to improve their communication skills to the market. I think they realize in the past that they needed improvement, and I think they have done this. You know, Lo Jiwei, the finance minister, has been doing it. Zhou Xiaochuan, the governor of the central bank, has been uh, trying to understand better how to work with and, and signal to the market in much the same way that the Fed or the ECB do. Um, Zhu Guangyao, the deputy finance minister, has talked about the fact that China is now focusing a lot more on market communication. I think they've come to understand that that is part of managing a very complicated economy to give signals to the market. And Jack Lew said, if you don't give signals to the market, the market will develop its own ideas of what you're doing. And I think the Chinese are, they're very quick learners and they're very smart. And I think they have come to conclude that they need to look at this experience of the past to figure out how to do it better when you're running a complicated and increasingly global economy. I give them credit for being a very quick lear- group of learners, and I think they've, they've expressed that at this IAF meeting, and I think we'll see more of this in the G20 meeting. Tom, you wanted to ask about Iran. I did want to ask about Iran. You've got an incredibly, totally typical Robert Hormat's effort where paragraph by paragraph I was learning about the strength and diversity of Iran as they face a new world. I was thunderstruck at your educational statistics on Iran as you write for the Atlantic Council. What did you learn in putting together this piece? When I was at State, I spent a lot of time trying to understand the Iranian economy because at that point we were imposing sanctions on them on a variety of things. So I really wanted to understand what's going on there. The interesting thing about Iran is it's not a monolithic government or monolithic economy. It's run by clerics, but they're also reformers. There's Rouhani and a number of people who want to open up the economy more, and foreign investors who are looking to invest in Iran. Now, under the current sanctions, most American companies can't trade with Iran and can't invest with Iran, but Europeans and American subs and Japanese and others right. can. And what they'll find, as I put point out in the report, is, first of all, there are a lot of very talented people in STEMs, in science, technology, engineering, mathematics. They're very well trained. It's a very, very innovative workforce. Many of them don't have jobs, so they want more foreign investment, at least the reformers, to absorb these unemployed people. On the other hand, when they go there, they're going to find that a large portion of the economy for the moment is totally opaque, 
you have a lot of companies that are controlled by members of the Revolutionary Guard right. or the Guard itself or these banyads, which are religious foundations. So, And many of the entities there are on the specially designated okay. names list, which means you can't deal with them uh, we, for fear of being penalized by U.S. sanctions. We are out of time, which is always the case with Bob Hormans. Please come back. Please don't be I a stranger. He's with Kissinger Associates. A headline across the Bloomberg. We'll have much more on this. Nissan of Japan sets a 400 billion yen buyback. Renault in Europe, in France, will go out and sell shares to the market. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Bloomberg Surveillance is brought to you by CIT. From transportation to healthcare to manufacturing, CIT offers commercial lending, leasing, and treasury management services for small and middle market businesses. Learn more at CIT.com. Put knowledge to work. Broadcasting live to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to Washington, D.C., Bloomberg 991, to Boston, Bloomberg 1200, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Radio Plus app at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Surveillance. Good morning. It's 730 on Wall Street. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. Two hours until we start trading today and looks at the moment like we're going to be up again, stocks higher around the world. Some of the corporate news that are pushing stocks higher, Alibaba in discussions with banks for a loan of as much as $4 billion, the Wall Street Journal says they would use the money to fund expansion plans. Hilton Worldwide Holdings is going to continue to pursue spinoffs of its hotel properties. Now it wants to spin off its timeshare business into a REIT to boost shareholder value. Uh, the uh, lawyers for Apple have filed their response to the Justice Department. They say that the FBI is seeking a, quote, dangerous power that would undermine the basic security and privacy interests of hundreds of millions of individuals around the globe. The FBI wants Apple to unlock the iPhone used by one of the attackers who killed 14 people in California in December. And RBS. Stock plunging today as the company reported losses and said it uh, would take longer to uh, reinstate its dividend. RBS shares down 8.4% right now. Let's check in with uh, John Tucker to get the latest world and national headlines. John? Yeah, good morning, Michael. Marco Rubio suddenly and urgently emerging from the shadows to hammer the front-runner Donald Trump last night during the 10th Republican presidential debate. Florida's junior senator compared Trump to a sketchy sidewalk salesman. Iranians today in parliamentary elections are voting the country's first vote since its landmark nuclear deal with world powers last summer. The vote is seen as a referendum on the policies of the moderate president, Hassan Rouhani. FIFA delegates approve changes designed to open up global soccer's governing body as it tries to overcome corruption allegations and arrests that brought on the biggest crisis in its 112-year history. The reforms include a new top board, 12-year term limits for the president and senior officials, as well as disclosure under pay. U.S. officials say the Pentagon has launched a newly aggressive campaign of cyber attacks against Islamic State militants. It's a targeted effort to erode the group's abilities to use social media and the Internet to recruit fighters and aspire followers. Global News, 24 hours a day, powered by our 2,400 journalists and more than 150 news bureaus around the world. I'm John Tucker. Michael. Thank you, John. Time now for the Ray Katina Auto Group Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. Here's John Stasher. 
All right, Mike, little history made by Rangers goalie Henrik Lundqvist last night in St. Louis. He shined in goal again with 35 saves. Rangers won 2-1. to one. It's the 30th win for Lundqvist, and he joins Marty Brodeur and Patrick Waz, the only goalies to have 10 seasons with 30 or more. Chris Kreider had the game-winning goal in the third period. Josh Bailey, the game-winner for the Islanders, with just 18 seconds left in overtime, a 2-1 win at Calgary. Devils never in it in Columbus. Blue Jackets scored three in the first off Corey Schneider before he got benched. They won 6-1, to the hat-trick for Nick Foligno. The Nets were paying Joe Johnson $25 million this season, considering where Brooklyn is in the standings. Not a surprise the two sides agreed to a buyout. Johnson gave $3 million back. He can now sign with a contending team. Nets found a team worse than they are. Phoenix has lost 13 in a row. Brooklyn won 116-106. 20th win for Seton Hall, 70-52 to over Providence. Also the Big East, St. John's fell to 1-15, losing to the only team they've beaten, DePaul. 8375 with the Bloomberg NBC Sports Update. I'm John Stashower. Thank you, John. Well, the G20 are meeting now in Shanghai. The meeting is officially underway. Gold prices down by a tenth of a percent. Not a lot of concern out there in the world as to what may happen in China. This is Bloomberg Worldwide. And welcome back to Surveillance. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. Green on the screen today, S&P futures up by nine points right now, a little more than four-tenths of a percent, a five-tenths gain for Dow futures. They are up 77. Europe's higher, the stock 600 by four points, 1.1 percent right now. Time now for the Bloomberg NJIT STEM report, brought to you by New Jersey Institute of Technology, partnering with government and industry to apply the university's world-class research assets to innovate and spur economic growth. Learn more at njit.edu. Here is Bob Moon. Michael, good morning, and it's coming up on 735 on Wall Street. Here's what's making news in science, technology, engineering, and math. So what would it take for Apple to crack into its own iPhone software? Ten engineers and a month of work is what the company says it could take for Apple to write the program the FBI says it needs to get data out of the San Bernardino terrorist iPhone. In a court filing in response to the government request that it helped break into the device, Apple said the order that it provide reasonable technical assistance doesn't take into full account what the assistance would entail and that it won't be fast or easy. The current software requires manual password entry and limits the number of incorrect guesses. In addition to the six to ten engineers, and as long as four weeks of work to create new code in a hyper-secure isolation room. The company said it would require multiple stages of testing, quality assurance, potentially recoding, documentation, then deploying the new operating system on the device at an Apple facility and supervising the Federal Bureau of Investigation's use of the whole system. That's this morning's Bloomberg NJIT STEM report. Michael. Thank you very much. Bob Moon. Susan Garamani is the uh, founder and CEO of SGH Macro Advisors, been on this show many times, a policy research firm for hedge funds and uh, international financial policymakers. M- many international financial policymakers today, obviously, in Shanghai for the G20 meeting, SAS, and uh, you've written that you're not expecting a whole lot out of this. Still, we note currency markets a little change today. People seem to be holding their breath on trading desks. 
Uh, good morning, Mike. First of all, thank you very much. And, Tom, thank you for having me on again. Um, you're right. Uh, we're not expecting much, but I'd like to talk actually a little bit here about expectations because you know, I've read a bunch of articles uh, in the run-up to the G20 meeting sort of pushing back and saying don't expect a 1985-style accord and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And, and you know, if I read one more of those, I'm going to pull out the little bit of hair I have left on my head. Nobody's really expecting that. Nobody's expecting a, you know, accord on, you know, global currency intervention or anything like that. The the, the important thing at this G20 meeting is, quite frankly, uh, to um, to really deliver a message um, that the policymakers uh, are 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 not out of ammunition, and this is sort of a narrative that has been um, you know very prevalent, I think, in, in the markets now. And there's concern. There was concern after the Bank of Japan cut rates, and it, you know the yen went the other way. Uh, and, and, and so I think that the main point um, at the G20 meeting is going to be twofold. Is one is the communique itself already addresses currency issues. They, it addresses volatility. They, nobody likes volatility. Currencies need to follow fundamentals. So I think it's important for them to reiterate that. Secondly, I think it's important. It's not so much the message as who is delivering the message that's, that's important. And that was uh, one of the key um, points that we're making in a piece that, um, that, that we wrote, I think, that, that, that you may have been alluding to earlier, um, saying that, look, this isn't China, and the, the China, Fed, and oil are sort of the big global risks out there that the markets are looking at, now Brexit as well. And so, you know, they, they really need to, I think, reassure markets you know, on two fronts. One is on the fundamentals of the economy, and they need to explain to their counterparts well, here's here's what's going on in our economy, and here's what we're doing. And secondly, on the currency, what are we doing with the currency? What is you know our 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 our, our policy here? And what they have really been weak on is explaining why why they you know don't want to step devaluation in so far. Um, we've already seen the first part of that, and, and and it's no coincidence you know there's there's been sort of silence, and then you know right. You know, in the run-up to the G20 meeting, uh, Central Bank Governor uh, Zhou Zhuan came out and talked about um, the, the possibility of, uh, yeah. of, of more monetary easing. There's also another piece that is, is, is not official, but it's sort of floated out there on the fiscal side, uh, where in an article written that says, hey, hey, China, you know, is talking about a 3%. Um, deficit to GDP ratio that could actually go up to as much as four percent. So these are the, the sorts of things that you know, not you know, coincidentally, are now being floated around um, at the G20 meeting. Uh, so uh, when we leave, do markets? Uh, and I only have about thirty seconds left before we have to take a break. Yep. We'll come back. But do markets move at all? Yeah, I think markets are moving already. You know, I mean, look, I, I don't think that um, there's there's you know the prospects of enormous reactions specifically to the G20. Remember the G20 is, you know, look, their, their last summit communique was 27 paragraphs, seven pages. You know, there's a lot, lots of things they talk about. Um, so it's not all about, you know, currencies and, and, and FX. Um, but, but broadly speaking, I think it's, it's the sense that the 
you know, global policymakers at least get it that they are doing no harm, and at least they can be helping the situation now. And I think this is the the the, the key takeaway um, that that they're trying to deliver. And, and I think markets um, are are sort of listening to that now. And so I think yes, this is a risk on event. So All right, uh, we'll come back with Susan Garbani from SGH Macro Advisors. Uh, They exist to read the communique so you don't have to. (laughs) There are firms like that. Um, Everybody wants to, will go immediately to the currency paragraph. They won't read the the rest of the thing that all these uh, highly paid government officials spend weeks putting together. I'm Michael McKee, along with Tom Keene. You are so cynical. This is Bloomberg (laughs) Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio Worldwide. We are counting down to the opening bell brought to you by the refined Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland. It continues to raise the bar with its luxurious interior and legendary 4x4 capability. Drive one at your local Jeep dealer today. Jeep, the official vehicle of Killington Resort. Global business news 24 hours a day at Bloomberg.com, the Radio Plus mobile app. And on your radio, this is a Bloomberg Business Flash. And I'm Karen Moscow. Vivendi paid Liberty Media $775 million to settle claims related to a dispute that arose from a 2001 transaction. As a result of this settlement, all appeals have been dismissed. Nissan Motor will acquire up to $3.5 billion of stock to enhance return to shareholders. And Alibaba Group Holding is in discussion with banks for a loan of as much as $4 billion to fund expansion plans, which could include acquisitions, according to the Wall Street Journal, which cited people familiar with the matter. Futures Higher this morning, S&P E-mini futures up 8 points, Dow E-mini futures up 65, NASDAQ E-mini futures up 22, the DAX in Germany is up 1.2%, 10-year Treasury down 5.30 seconds, the yield 1.73%, NYMEX crude oil up 9 tenths percent or 28 cents to 33.35 a barrel, COMEX gold is little change down 80 cents to 12.38 an ounce, the euro $1.1024, the yen 112.86. And that's a Bloomberg Business Flash, Tom and Mike. Karen Moscow, thank you very much. We're talking with Sasan Garamani. He's the founder and CEO of SGH Macro Advisors. We, we're talking about uh, what to expect out of the G20 meeting. The G20, obviously, they are meeting in Shanghai today. Have a lot to talk about, things going on around the world. I want to touch on some of those. Uh, we were just talking a little bit with Bob Hormatz about the uh, elections underway in Iran. Mm-hmm. Uh, are they going to be anything that changes the geopolitical calculation at all, or is this just sort of an interim step out there? Um, it, it changes things on the margins, I think. Um, you know, the elections are, are not to be confused with the presidential elections, which are sort of a much bigger deal, the ones that, you know, uh, started the whole Green Revolution and you know, the, the, the failed Green Revolution and, and, and put in Khatami and, and Ahmadinejad during his time and, and then eventually now uh, Rouhani. These are elections for, for parliament and for the assembly of experts. Um, parliament, the Iranian majlis is, you know, it's, it's, I wouldn't call it a rubber stamp. It's, it's a, you know, it has some power, um, but it doesn't really have that much power. So, you know, it, 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 and then one key thing I think that, that is, that I'd like to point out about these elections is that people a lot of times view Iran, uh, you know, from the prism of, you know, hardliners versus moderates and, which is, which is, Sort of right, uh, correct. But the 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 relationship that that the current president has, Rouhani, with uh, with the Khamenei, with the the, the hardliners, yeah. is is not as as um, as 
polarized as it was during Khatami's time. You know, both the, the okay. Khamenei has moved to the middle and Rouhani is, is not quite as liberal. Help me with this because we have such respect for your heritage and for your knowledge of Persia. The basic idea of a 32-year-old engineer in Tehran, and they're not building nuclear arms or whatever, they're doing whatever they're doing, do they have a linkage with their government, or are the people, a 32-year-old engineer in Tehran, male, female, I don't care, do they have a linkage with the elites in the government? Uh, well, you know, the, there is a, a whole sort of um, class in Iran of uh, um, of people who, who, who do a lot of business, a, a middle class that is very involved with some of the foundations, for example, and, and the, with the Revolutionary Guards and so on. So there, there are, you know, some industries and some sectors. If you're a big, in big business, you sort of have to deal with the government. But to your question, not so much, you know, and, and I think this is, you know, it's, it, this, Iran is somewhere mixed between an autocratic and a totalitarian society. It's, it's more towards autocratic where, you know, for most of the people, you know, I think there, there's a relatively um, except for on social issues, you know, with the, with the chador and hijab and, and things like that, um, it's a relatively laissez-faire um, type of, uh, of of environment for 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 the middle class. If you're in the, in, in the, the lower class, it's different. Um, there's a lot of subsidies and so on, and in the very top, it's different as well. You, you know, um, but not so much for the middle class. Are there going to be investment opportunities, serious investment opportunities yeah. in Iran in the near future? Yes, there are. And then, uh, and then, you know, you have European companies are, are already lined up. People traditionally think of it as, you know, an oil and gas industry, which is obviously the big industry in Iran. One thing important that has changed in Iran um, now as opposed to in the past is that Rouhani is legitimately trying to change some of the regulations surrounding foreign investment and, 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 and somewhat successfully. They used to have very onerous restrictions as far as, you know, who could, who could invest. So the Iranians are doing their bit to try to attract foreign investment at this point. Um, they sort of scare people off. There's a couple of people still in jail and so on, which is unfortunate. And, you know, so it's kind of a damper on, 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 on some of the uh, more positive sentiment. The issue right now is, is mm-hmm. mostly with, with the U.S. Um, and the fact that uh, there are still concerns with dollar transactions, and, and some of the sanctions have not been lifted. And so for U.S. business, it's still yeah. hard, but I think that that should change over time. So Iran is trying to, you know, circumvent that through barter, through dealing with the euro, you know, and, and, and things like that. Well, it's at the disadvantage of U.S. companies. To right our now. national audience, coast to coast, Washington, Boston, San Francisco, New York, everybody on Sirius and XM Channel 119 as well, can American companies get any kind of fair shake doing business with the new Iran? Or do they have to set up a shadow company in Germany, name it something else, yeah. to get any business done? Yeah, well, I, I think that the, the uh, officially there's not a need to set up shadow companies and, and so on anymore. I think the, 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 there, there has been you know, some opening in, in not, not a complete opening. There's, they, they call them the OFAC restrictions are, are, you know, still in place to a large extent. So the, 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 the bigger issue is, is a pragmatic one and a practical one. And the, the fact is that I think a lot of the banks and the, and the banking system is concerned because, you know, they're concerned that the rules might change on them. This is, this is the biggest problem. And
in that you know you you have had you know some banks that transactions with Iran and then you know they they, they had um, they were subsequently prosecuted and then you have presidential candidates who are saying we're going to you know rip up the the deal you know the, the day one the nuclear deal, deal with Iran day one that we start so I think that's what's being you know the fear that things could um, uh, especially on the banking side um, could reverse is, is sort of the um, the, the the big uh, impediment right now. Hopefully, we'll have more clarity on that after the elections, and you know we'll we'll see how that goes. Uh, let me shift gears here and ask you about Brexit. It's uh, as one uh, writer put it this morning, possibly going to be as significant as all the other issues yeah. like China and oil before the end of the year. Uh, do you agree? Uh, I I. Maybe not as significant. Yes, it is a significant issue. Let me, let me put it this way. And, and one of the issues is that, you know, the polls currently show the in vote or the stay vote. You know, they, they're called both things. Um, stay with the EU is, is in a, has has a lead. I think the betting right now on on, on the street is kind of seventy percent. You know, there's, there's there's UK betting shops which are, people follow this. You know, where where the where the retail money, so to speak, is going. The United Kingdom has betting shops. <laughs> shocking, shocking. Just shocked. <laughs> and they do better than some of the traders. I have to say. You, you thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so people pay pay close attention to that. Um, the the problem is that um, is is that. And, and we think actually that Cameron got some relatively reasonable concessions out of the EU, but they're hard to explain. They're sort of technical, and this is such an emotional issue. And and he's being blasted, you know, um, by tip, what will typically be Tory-friendly press has come back and 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 criticized him on the deal. And so, yeah, I think this thing might might narrow, you know, be, be, before it widens. And it, it, it could end up being like, the, if you remember the Scottish referendum that kind of got really close, and then you know, ultimately we think, yeah, probably they're, they're going to stay in. The odds are that, that, that they, they don't you know, leave, leave the EU. But uh, it'll, uh, it's going to tighten before you know, mm-hmm. I think there's more comfort. What's the biggest concern your clients have right now? Uh, the, the, the three concerns, if I can say that, are um, are really um, China, Fed, and oil and energy policy. If you want a, a, a biggest concern, one single overarching concern, I think is the what we we're, were talking about earlier is is the narrative that um, you know that that monetary and fiscal policy is having less and less impact. Uh, so you're getting diminishing returns from from policymaker action. And so I think there's concern about that, frankly, uh, and not just diminishing return, but sometimes maybe even, you know, a, a negative reaction. So you're getting a lot of stories about, you know, was the Bank of Japan wrong to cut, you know, rates, uh, their, their deposit rates into negative territory? Is that having, you know, what's the cost benefit of that at this point? Are you, you know, hurting the banks more, you know, taxing the banks and so on and creating a negative uh, disinflationary sentiment and cycle rather than actually sort of stimulating the economy? So I, I think if, the, if there's one big overarching concern, it's 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 really that it's some sort of glo- the, the the power of uh, the the powers to be, so to speak. Can China actually manage, you know, a, a soft landing? Mm-hmm. These, these are things that people are are concerned yeah. about. Sasan, thank you so much. Sasan Garamani, SGH Macro Advisors. Uh, a little bit of G20 feel there as well. Mike, I've never seen this. I see it now. Our good our good colleague in financial and economic crime, Greg Ip. Greg Gipp, a wonderful journalist, uh, was out on Twitter 
Do you know who retweeted him? I think Whom? one N.R. Kotcherlakota. Well, he's a private citizen now. He's a private citizen, the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. Was, was it fair to say, Mike, he was a dot descended? <laughs> he he was. was like the outlier lower dot. Yeah. Kotcherlakota out on Twitter. It's a nerd fest. That's very cool. Good to see you. I, I believe I'll have to follow the former president of the Minneapolis Fed. We will follow with another hour of your Bloomberg surveillance.